Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 101. That's our sermon text for this morning. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 101. Uh, If you haven't been with us, uh, I should tell you, we've been working through the Psalms little by little over the past, uh, I don't even know, since February or so. Uh, We haven't hit every Psalm, but we've tried to hit uh, a selection to give us a feel for what's in this book of Psalms. And so this morning we come to Psalm 101. Uh, Before I read that, though, uh, let's pray one more time together. Our Father, we come to you to hear from you, to uh, hear you speak to us through the scriptures. Uh, We come to you because we we need you, we need your word. And of course, Father, we need your spirit to understand your word, to receive it, to believe it, uh, to understand it and be changed by it. And so we pray that you would open our eyes by your spirit, that we would see Jesus this morning in all of his glory. And that you would continue your work of conforming us to the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 101. A Psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of God. Well, there is a certain uh, tragedy in life when two good things are pitted against one another uh, as if they could not coexist together, like truth and grace, or like authority and kindness, like religion and spirituality, uh, like faith and reason, like biblical faithfulness or, and cultural sensitivity. Or, like what we are going to talk about this morning, as if the pursuit of holiness could not go hand in hand with a gospel-centered life. Sometimes Christians put those things against one another, law and gospel, as if to obey the law in and of itself were to deny the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that law and gospel are not distinct things, oh, they, they are, In fact, if you mistake the law for the gospel, you are in a heap of trouble. And if you mistake the gospel for the law, your life will tend to be a directionless mess. They are distinct and even opposing principles at times, but it is possible to pursue obedience to the law of God out of faith and delight in the gospel. And so Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. 
And by the way, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which we often take as the commission to go and preach the gospel, if you read it, it is a commission to teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. So we're going to talk about pursuing holiness this morning in light of the gospel in the disposition of our hearts and in the activity of our lives. If you want, you can follow along. There's an outline on the back of the bulletin that has just those three points. uh, Pursuing holiness in the light of the gospel, in the disposition of our hearts, and in the activity of our lives. Uh, This psalm, Psalm 101, is a psalm of David, uh, as you uh, heard a moment ago. And it would actually be hard to understand this psalm if it weren't a psalm of David. Uh, David spoke this psalm as the king of Israel, which helps us understand why these words are so important. This is basically David's kingly oath to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to pursue justice for the wicked, to take counsel with the righteous, and to do that every day as a first priority until the kingdom is rid of all evil. Essentially, David is saying, I am going to fulfill my kingly role by seeking justice in the land. As we work through this psalm, then, we should apply it in two ways. Uh, The the first is we should apply it to our own soul. Uh, David models for us the godliness desired of God's people in general. Uh, But second, we should apply it to, to leadership, whether in the church or in society, because David models for us godly leadership in particular. So we're going to look at pursuing holiness in the light of the gospel, in the disposition of our hearts, and in the activity of our lives, as applied both to our own piety and life, but also to leaders in church and society. And so first, pursuing holiness in the light of the gospel. Um, Let me point out uh, in the text from the start where it is so clear that David is committed to pursuing holiness. Uh, So... Uh, I want you to look at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, And I want you to notice the phrase, I will. And uh, in the one verse where that phrase is absent, you'll notice there uh, the the direct and unequivocal commitment to right action. See, David is, is making a commitment through this psalm to do what is right. He's going to make every effort to honor God. This isn't just wishful thinking on his part. It it isn't just, I I hope I'll do the right thing, maybe. Uh, There's no excuse making here. This is not, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, It it isn't even, I'll do my best as a kind of uh, sloppy cop-out. David is going all in. He is giving himself over to doing what is right before God. Nothing will get in his way. And I want to point out from the start, as we think about David's commitment, that while his commitment and devotion is good, and we should commend it and imitate it, uh, we should also recognize that David will fail. David will fail at, at points big time. You may remember David ended up sleeping with another man's wife. And then he had that man killed to cover it up. He used his position of power for his own pleasure and protection rather than the good of his people. David's house was at times a mess. 
From what we can tell, uh, David may have been a great king, but he was a pretty bad dad. So bad that one of his sons sought to overthrow him as king. And these are just the highlights. Now, there's one or two ways that we could go with this. Uh, The first is cynicism, right? We could get cynical about David, about the Psalms, about Scripture, about religion in general. We could decry religious leaders as hypocrites. I mean, look at David, after all. We could say it's all a sham. And, of course, there are hypocrites. So that only lends credibility to that cynicism. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we, too, do not live up to our ideals. It doesn't matter who you are. Honesty will show that you fall short. Maybe something more is going on here in this psalm. David paints a picture of an ideal. Not that he didn't really strive for it. He did. And not that he didn't have success at times. He did. But it was an ideal which David, being a sinful man, could never fully live up to. As we read through the scriptures, of course, we see David the king is pointing us forward to a better king. Jesus alone can fulfill the ideal set down in this psalm. Here was a king who would not fail, whose enemies could find no fault in him whose greatest crime was claiming to be a king and claiming to be God, both of which are only crimes if they aren't true. And yet this king was put to death as a criminal. He died a sinner's death. He was on the receiving end of so-called justice. He was hung on a tree between two thieves, really insurrectionists, uh, those who sought to overthrow the political order of their day. And there Jesus suffered and died with them. And Jesus did this for us. Jesus embraced his own pain and suffering for the good of his people. Unlike David pursuing his pleasure and protection, Jesus pursued our good and God's glory. And he did that even to the point of death. But as you probably know, the end of the story, this king didn't stay dead Scripture tells us that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, and he rose receiving all authority in heaven and on earth, ascending to the right hand of the Father and sitting down on the throne of God in heaven. Now Jesus, as king, having died in the place of his people, offers pardon. This king holds out a royal pardon to sinners like David and like me and like you. And it's in the light of this grace, this forgiving, pardoning grace, that we pursue holiness. In fact, only in light of this grace can we pursue holiness. If you don't know the acceptance of the Father through the Son, those who... who, If you don't know the acceptance of the Father through the Son, your pursuit of holiness will always be tainted with false motives seeking to curry the favor of God or man. We think, uh, I'll do good in order to look good, so that God will accept me and man will be impressed with me. Once I know that I'm accepted by my Father, that I'm loved and cared for and delighted in, I can pursue obedience to Him, not to curry His favor, but to bring my Father delight knowing that no matter how many times I stumble and fall, like any good father, he will pick me up, dust me off, hug me tight, and tell me to give it another go. 
our Father loves us. And He has demonstrated that love in the cross. He has secured our forgiveness through the blood of His Son, Jesus. And more than that, through faith, we're told in Scripture, we die and rise with Jesus. That means our old life has passed away, a new life has come, and the power of sin has been broken. The Spirit, having breathed new life into us, we are new creations in Christ. Which means not only are we free to pursue holiness, but we have the ability to do so. Not by our strength, we, we are powerless in ourselves but by the power of the Spirit in us. And so we pursue holiness in active dependence upon the Spirit, seeking His strength for each day. And not only that, but Scripture says the more we gaze upon Christ, the more we are increasingly conformed to His image. The Gospel makes us holy. Yes, apart from Christ, the law can only show us our failure and condemn us for it. But in Christ, we are forgiven and made new and being made holy. And so we pursue holiness in the light of the gospel. But second, we pursue holiness in the disposition of our hearts. So if in the first point we're talking about the the source of our pursuit, here we're talking about where it begins. Uh, Sin does not begin in our actions. Jesus teaches from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, Jesus says. And since sin comes from within, holiness must begin within as well. How do we see that here in the psalm? Well, David commits to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, and to do that even when no one is looking. First, David commits to love what God loves. Notice where the psalm begins, verses 1 and 2. David says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? David is here introducing the psalm. He's telling us what he's about to sing. He's giving us his subject matter, steadfast love and justice. Now, interestingly enough, David is not singing about God's steadfast love and justice. There are many psalms that sing about that. That's not what David is singing about here. He's singing about his own. David is singing about the steadfast love and justice required of him as a king. And by singing about them, David expresses his delight in these things. By pondering and meditating on them, he expresses his dedication to what is good and right. It's easy to say, I'm I'm committed to doing right, but David takes time to ponder the right, to consider, to meditate upon it, to work the right into his heart and into his mind so he is ready when his resolve is tested. The end of verse 2 is interesting because it's, it's out of character for the rest of the psalm. Uh, David says, I will sing, I will make music, I will ponder. Oh, when will you come to me? My best understanding is something like this. Uh, David expresses his delight and commitment to what is right and just as the king of Israel. But leadership can be a lonely place. And doing what's right in leadership can be even lonelier and hard. I mean, and just look at uh, before and after pictures of U.S. presidents, right? It's, it's stressful work. It takes its toll on people. And so at the very start of his song, David expresses his commitment 
But he also wonders when it's going to end. When the weight of the nation will no longer be on his shoulders. Now we move to love what God loves when we actively delight in the good and ponder it. When we set our hearts on it. I've said before that we all know what meditation is. It's just that we normally call it worry. You know, worry is when we meditate on all that could go wrong. But what if we were to meditate on the good and on the way that is blameless and on what is right? As we do that, we begin to shape our hearts to love what God loves. Notice these are activities here, what David is saying, singing and pondering. Right? Because it's true, we can't, we can't reach into our hearts and flip a switch and suddenly change our loves just like that. But we can actively engage our whole selves so that we train our hearts to delight in the good, to love what God loves. Well, David not only sought to love what God loves, but he also committed to hating what God hates. Look at verses 3 and 4. David says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. David will not set anything worthless before his eyes. What what does that mean? What does it mean to set something before your eyes? Well, we, we see that in other Psalms. Psalm 54, verse 3. The ruthless do not set God before themselves. Uh, Romans 3.18, quoting Psalm 36, says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. In contrast, uh, Psalm 16, verse 8, the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. See, to set something before your eyes is to gaze on it. It's to ponder it. It's to delight in it, to desire it, to strive for it. It's like keeping a picture of a loved one on your desk or, or writing out and posting your yearly goals. What you set before your eyes is what makes its way into your heart. Hebrews 12.2 Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. To set something before you is to have it as your heart's desire and delight. David says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now the word worthless uh, to us just simply means not having value, but in Scripture it's always used for something that is morally suspect. David is saying, I won't set my heart on on morally suspect things, but only on things that are worthy. Next, David says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. And we tend to think hatred is always bad, but that's not so. We should hate what God hates. And David here hates the works of those who turn their back on God. David has a, a moral aversion to sinful behavior. Now, I don't know about you, but my problem with sin is that I love it. I don't, I don't love all sin, just those sins that I find pleasing. But this is, this is the heart that we should long to have, where we hate sin, where we flee from it. The heart that sees things as God sees them and sees sin as horrific, as hurtful, as unholy. We want a heart that says, uh, as David does in verse 4, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And David didn't want to know evil at all. Right? Unlike Adam and Eve who had this uh, desire to know even evil, David says, not me. I don't want to go there. 
We should beware of the curiosity that says, well, I, you know, I don't want to do it. I, I just want to read about it. Or I don't want to do it, but, but it can't hurt to look. I'm just curious after all. David says, no, I want to know nothing of evil. I don't even want to go there. David commits to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And he commits to do those things, third, even when no one is looking. Notice many of these things are are things that no one can see. Uh, No one can see you ponder the way that is blameless. Uh, No one can see what you set before your eyes. Certainly not before the eyes of your heart. Uh, No one can see what you hate. And, of course, we act on these things, right? Our behavior should reflect or does reflect what's in our hearts, but no one knows another's thoughts. And notice the second half of verse 2. David says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. David, the king, a public person, is saying, not only in public, but in private as well, I will walk with integrity. Now, again, we know that, that David had some pretty big failures here. But this was the desire of his heart, to walk with integrity even when no one was looking, even when no one could see. Let me ask, is this your desire? Is your desire to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, and even when no one is looking? Do you take time to actively delight in the good and to ponder it? Do you set what is good and right and true before yourself? Uh, have you heeded the encouragement of Paul in Philippians 4.8? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Loving what God loves and hating what God hates, it won't just happen. We need to set our hearts on it, set our eyes toward it, set our minds meditating upon it. Paul says we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. Again, there's no switch to flip, but there is, as as Eugene Peterson called it, the long obedience in the same direction, right? As As we are conformed to the image of Jesus, as we meditate on his works day by day, as we set our minds on Christ... We should consider that, of course, this is important for rulers as well. Right? This is important for King David. His private life mattered. The private lives of, of leaders matters as well. Because whatever morality we pursue in private will inevitably seep into our dealings in public. It's true that sometimes we can compartmentalize. Right? People get good at that. But consider that when David went bad in his private life, his dealings with the wife of Uriah, that seeped into his public policy as well. He misused his position as a king to cover his crime. And so we pursue holiness in the light of the gospel, but also in the disposition of our hearts in public and in private. Third, we pursue holiness in the activity of our lives. In verses 5 through 8, David moves from attitudes to to outward actions, from more private matters to more public. And again, we see three things here about pursuing holiness in the activity of our lives. David commits to pursuing justice against the wicked, to keeping company with the righteous, and to do that every day as a first priority in every area of life. So first, David commits to pursuing justice for the wicked. Now, again, it's important to remember that this is David's commitment as king. Uh, Verse 5, 
says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Uh, David promises, right, not to put up with the haughty and the arrogant and to destroy those who slander, those who tell lies. Now, if this were a private oath, I would say it was poorly made, right? Sometimes we do have to endure the haughty and the arrogant. And it is not our job as individuals to destroy the slanderer. But it is somebody's job. Uh, Slander, by the way, was taken very seriously in Israel. Slander itself is a kind of murder. It's killing the reputation of the neighbor. Slander could lead to false convictions, which could lead to unjust punishments and unjust fines and even the death penalty in Israel. The one who bore false testimony in Israel actually received the penalty that their false testimony would have inflicted unjustly upon the other. What that means is David's job really was, at times, to destroy the slanderer. David promises not to endure the haughty and the arrogant. Why? Well, because God himself opposes the proud. David simply picks up on God's heart and puts that into action as king. Verse 8 picks up on this. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of God. David's job is to remove the wicked from the land. And the net effect would be a just and peaceful society. David is not saying that he wants to destroy every sinner in the land because there would be no one left to rule. But he's saying those who are notoriously wicked, who harden their hearts and their wicked ways, who spread their wickedness and corrupt others, those who have a destructive effect on society, these are the special object of David's attention. David is saying he's going to carry out the law of God as it's found in Scripture. And this would be like a police officer taking an oath to arrest those who commit crimes. That's a good thing. That's their job. This would be like a prosecuting attorney promising to pursue justice against rapists and murderers. That's what we want them to do. David is saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to promote justice in the nation. Well, how does that apply to us? Uh, For one thing, if you are in such a position, this should be your commitment as well. Our elected officials should seek justice. They should punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, according to 1 Peter 2.14. But also anyone in any position of authority should seek justice within their world, within their domain. That may not always mean uh, destroying the wicked, as it would for David, but in a way that's fit for where you are and where you find yourself. So bosses hold employees accountable when they start stealing from work. Or parents hold kids accountable. Uh, Again, I'm not saying every leader uh, should become a fascist dictator, punishing to the full extent for every tiny infraction. But we are to pursue justice when injustice is done, especially when someone else is wronged by it. And so wherever you have authority, and everyone has authority over something, you should ensure that justice is done there. David commits to pursuing justice against the wicked, And second, David commits to keeping company with the righteous. Uh, Look at verses 6 to 7. David says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. 
No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Uh, Now, again, we need to read this as the words of David the king. David promises that the faithful will dwell with him. The blameless shall minister to him. The deceitful shall not dwell in his house. The liar shall not continue to before him. Uh, what, What is he saying and why is it so important for him as the king? Why is it important for a king to surround himself with righteous people? I hope the answer is obvious because they are his counselors. They are his advisors. They are the ones who will influence him. Proverbs 29.12 says, If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. David the king wants to surround himself with faithful, blameless, honest men. And just imagine, just imagine if that was the goal of every politician in the world, to surround themselves with faithful, blameless, honest men. Would that change things? You you might wonder, okay, uh, but what about Jesus? Because uh, Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. He spent so much time with them, in fact, that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Well, here again, we have two good things which on the surface seem to oppose one another, but in reality do not. It's true, Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, but he did not take counsel with them. Similarly, the New Testament has a significant list of requirements for leadership in the church, which include things like being above reproach and self-controlled and not a lover of money and not arrogant or quick-tempered. He must be upright and so on. And so we make a distinction between who we might spend time with in love, as Jesus did, and who we want in positions of leadership, whether in the church or in society, and rightly so. We should make that distinction. And we can go a step further, right? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, bad company ruins good morals. Why did David not want to surround himself with haughty, arrogant, deceitful men? He didn't want to become one himself. Again, how does this differ from Jesus spending time with the worst of the worst? I think the answer lies somewhere between these two questions. Well, one, who are you seeking to pour, who are you seeking to pour into your soul? And where do your temptations lie? See, David was a king. He needed counselors who would give him wise counsel and not just tell him what he wanted to hear. There is a difference between being influenced and influencing. We need to discern that difference. And then we we cherish those who influence us positively. We avoid those who will influence us negatively. And we love those whom we ourselves can influence for good. This is David's commitment to pursue justice against the wicked, but also to keep company with the righteous. Those who will will give him wise counsel so that he can be a better leader in Israel. Third, he commits to doing this every day as a first priority in every area of life. Look at verse 8 again. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The phrase morning by morning implies both every day morning by morning, but also as a first priority right from the start of the day. David's not going to start doing his job mid-afternoon. But first thing, morning by morning. This is to say, David says, I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to pursue holiness from the start. It's not going to be an afterthought. 
It's not, I, I'm, I'm not going to pursue the right when I get around to it. I want to spend my life serving God from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed every day for the rest of my days. And for David, again, that meant destroying the wicked in the land, cutting off the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Again, David's job was to seek the purity of the nation. He wasn't going to leave a little bit of wickedness in in this corner or that corner of Jerusalem. This is often what we do with sin in our lives. We, We are okay with this sin or that sin, right? We've gotten rid of the big things, but but a, a little bit here and a little bit there. Well, that's okay. that's okay. We're not uncomfortable with that. But David commits to destroying all the wicked and cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, you may, if you think about it, realize that Jesus will do the same thing. On the last day, he will come to judge and make war, Revelation says in Revelation 19. Why? To, to cleanse the land of sin. Many of us are familiar with the picture of the new creation in Revelation 21. The, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. The dwelling place of God will be with man and there will be no more crying nor pain nor death anymore. It's this glorious vision. But of that city, the new Jerusalem, we are told in Revelation 21, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The purity and goodness of that city is ensured by the absence of the wicked. Just as David sought to purify Jerusalem, so Jesus will on the last day cleanse heaven and earth from all wickedness. It will be a glorious day. No more crooked politicians, no more sneaky business deals, no more violence or murder or rape or war, no more break-ins or car thieves, no more bitter breakups or broken families. Jesus will cleanse this world of sin and sadness. Can you imagine it? Of course, if you think this through, you might begin to squirm in your seat a bit. Sometimes I am a part of the sin and sadness in the world. What will come of me? On that last day. Remember back to the beginning. Our own pursuit of holiness must be in the light of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners by taking on sadness. He suffered and died on the cross. He rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand as king to offer a royal pardon. Jesus offers not a truce, by the way. He doesn't offer a ceasefire. It's not, it's not two equal sides agreeing to stop fighting as long as the other does as well, but with no real change of allegiance. No, Jesus is the king and we are the rebels. And Jesus offers us pardon if we will turn from our rebellious ways and return to bow before him as king. David commits to pursuing justice against the wicked, to keeping company with the righteous and do that Every day is a first priority in every area of life. And that's just part of his policy to pursue holiness in the light of the gospel, in the disposition of his heart, and in the activity of his life. I pray that it would be so for us as well. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for your mercy offered in Jesus. Uh, We thank you for David, who was a great king, but we also know that he was a human, and he was a sinner, and he failed. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. We thank you that he was a better king than David. 
We thank you that he died for us to defeat our enemies, that we might have life in him. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. Help us to look to him, to cling to him, to delight in him always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.